Look with me, please. First John chapter 4, and we'll just be reading uh, two verses this evening. We'll go back through some of this text, but tonight for our actual uh, text we'll be looking into this evening, progressing in our study in verses 15 and 16. So First John chapter 4, verse 15. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Last week we examined the context and meaning of the statement John makes in verse 8 when he declared, God is love. This is not, as I've mentioned, this is not an all-inclusive definition or description of God as some have attempted to make it to be. But as John will further explain, even as we see in the text this evening, in these two verses, specifically in verse 16, it, this is a statement that emphasizes that God's love is evident within the lives of those who know Him. Verses 7 and 8 state, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. God's love flows from His heart to ours, and then from ours to others, and God's love within us produces a love for others, especially those who are also believers in Christ. And so in this passage in verses 7 and 8, it's important, as we'll look into this in a moment further, but yet it's important to recognize that he doesn't just merely say God is love, but notice he says for God is love. And that's important because it is connecting us to the previous statement, as we will discover in a few moments or review in light of even our text this evening. Then verses 9 and 10 we go on to read, and this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So within these two verses, John expounds upon the magnitude of God's love and God's love was demonstrated in the most meaningful manner or way possible. And that, of course, is through the sacrifice of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it was in this manner that the Father manifested His love. And this is the only verse that says this. We see in, in chapter uh, 4, verse 9, "...in this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him." But then in Romans, we're also told, but God commended, and God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so both the word commendeth and the word manifested, it, it means that God has demonstrated that he has, that he has man, commendeth, that he has manifested or demonstrated and manifested that he has displayed, if you will, he has made known this love through the person of his son, through the sacrifice. And so within these two verses, John, again, is expounding the truth of the magnitude of this love of God and how that it was demonstrated and manifested in the most meaningful and the greatest manner possible. And that, of course, was through the sacrifice of His Son. Then in verse 11, we go on to read, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Now, our love for others is not based, as we understand even from this verse, our love for others is not based on their worth or merit of our love any more so than God's expression of love for us is based on our merit or our worth of His love. Notice what he says again, beloved, so he's talking to believers, if God loved us as believers, we have been loved of God. If this is true and we've received His love, we ought also to love one another. Now, we know that none of us can claim tonight 
that God loved us based on our merit of His love, that God loved us because we deserved His love, that God loved us because He was obligated to love us, as though we had done something or we had caught His eye in some manner where He says, oh, I think I'll just choose to love this person because they're such good people. Of course not. We know that's not true. However, we understand that God's love is not based on our merit and worth, and that means that our love for others is not based on their merit or their worth any more so than we deserve God's love. And just a side note concerning our, we don't merit or deserve God's love. Ashton was talking to me just a moment ago about, she was watching a video and she said it's a guy who uh, on YouTube states, he, he's saying, oh, just because uh, people aren't bad just because they look rough on the outside. I said, you're, you're right, people are bad because they're bad on the inside. That's why they're bad. It doesn't matter what they look like on the outside. We don't deserve God's love. Men are wicked. We are inherently wicked. We don't, we don't merit God's love. We don't deserve God's love. And the point is, it has nothing to do with what we look like outwardly or what we do outwardly. The fact of the matter is we are sinful. And so we do not deserve the love of God. And so, But then John is pointing out here, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So if God's love has been demonstrated to us, regardless of the fact and despite the fact that we are not worthy of such love, then our love for others, God's love flowing, flowing through us, is what John is referencing, should not either be gauged or, or based upon our judgment of whether someone deserves that or not. And so, again, I, I remind you of this truth that we are all equally unworthy, therefore we should all equally be thankful for the love of God and the, and the mercy and grace of God because none of us deserve this. And so when we understand that and have that mindset and we do not exalt ourselves above others, which we have no right to do, then we begin to recognize that in our, all of us being unworthy, we should be equally grateful and thankful for the love of God and the grace and mercy of God. And therefore, that love should flow through us towards others, specifically believers in Christ, recognizing that we have received the grace of God undeservingly, and they have received the grace of God undeservingly, and we are no more deserving than they are of such grace. And therefore, this love should flow through us in the same manner. Verses 12 through 14, No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. His love is, is, is accomplished in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. God's love is being accomplished in us as it is manifested to others, specifically, again, to other believers. Remember, we're told that we are, are to do good unto all men, but then there's a, a, a statement made out of that, especially to those of the household of faith. And the point being that, if, yes, we are to demonstrate love to all people, but when we have the same Father... And when we have the same Savior, and when we submit to the same Lord, that common ground provided through the unity of the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God dwelling in us, should just flow over and emanate from us to one another as followers of Christ. So we've discovered throughout our study of this epistle, as you've heard many times, John provides several tests, which in reality are the, it is, it is the evidence present within the lives of those who know the Lord and are in fellowship with Him. And these tests, or this evidence, reveals in truth the authenticity of the claims of those who profess fellowship with God. And the test John introduces within this chapter, as we have seen, is that of discernment. John instructs believers to test or to prove as to whether a spirit is of God or it is not. And as I've mentioned previously, this is not some mystical practice or some instruction to, to put forth some mystical effort. 
to subjectively determine whether a spirit is of God, but rather John's instruction is that, and, and the, the fulfillment of this instruction, it, it, it's saying that this instruction is accomplished whenever we compare what others profess with the truth of God's Word. There are two necessary truths which must be present within one's life if they are to possess and practice such discernment of which John writes in this epistle and even in this passage. First, one must possess the Spirit of God which provides discernment. So if we are going to have spiritual discernment, then we must possess the Spirit of God. He must dwell in us that we have that spiritual discernment. If you recall with me, in in Corinthians, Paul wrote and stated that uh, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit. They are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. So apart from God's Spirit, man has no spiritual discernment. So if we're going to have spiritual discernment, if we are going to try the spirits to see if they be of God or not, then it requires that we possess the Spirit of God within us. But that's not all that is necessary. There's also another truth that must be present, and that is that one must be rooted and grounded in truth, which is the basis of discernment. Remember, discernment is not some warm, fuzzy feeling you get, even because you say a prayer. Discernment is the Spirit of God illuminating your heart and mind to the already revealed and established truth of God's Word. And so God has declared this, but man doesn't understand this. That's the problem. And so God's Spirit brings understanding as we commit ourselves to the Word in submission to the Spirit of God. We now, by the power of the Spirit, are being provided what is necessary for us to have understanding. God has provided His Word, and then He's given us a Spirit that we might understand His Word. And so once again, John is not referring to some mystical means by which we determine what is true or what is of God, but rather he writes of a discernment which is provided by the indwelling Spirit of God who is using God's Word to guide us into all truth and as well to protect us from error. Truth guards us from error. And so as we know truth, as we are rooted in truth, as we are grounded in truth, then we have safeguards against error. If you take someone who knows no truth whatsoever, then you can lead them, tell them, convince them, manipulate them, tell, you can give them whatever you want and cause them to believe and follow. Why do you think so many cults are so successful in the world today? and have been through, the, through history, even though it's proven over time that these things are, 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 are cults, and, and yet they still abound and continue to exist. Why? Why do people flock and follow after? Because if you are absent of truth, then you are easily persuaded by error and by lies and by falsehoods. And so the point is that truth protects us, truth guards us, but we must be rooted and grounded in the truth. And so it's apparent that, that God's Word is necessary, must be present, we must be rooted and grounded in truth, but also we must have the Spirit of God. And there's always this danger on on the the extreme sides of this spectrum, if you will. And the danger is that you have on one side people who say, oh, I have the Spirit of God within me and He just tells me what's right and He tells me what's wrong. And then you have the people on the other side who say, well, I just, I'm committed myself to study, absolutely, and therefore, you know, I know what the Scripture says about this, that, and the other. But there's a danger on both ends. And here's the danger. On one end, when you have people who are coming out just depending on the Spirit of God, just praying and saying, God, give me understanding, give me discernment, and they don't commit themselves to actual study. I'm not talking about reading, actual study of Scripture. Then you have a danger of being led astray emotionally and even spiritually because there are other spiritual forces, as we've seen even in Ephesians, there are other spiritual forces in play other than God's Spirit alone. 
And then you have the other side of this where people are committed to academia or just intellectualism, if you will, and they're not dependent upon the Spirit of God to actually enlighten them, to actually illuminate their hearts and minds to the truth of His Word. And it's not either or, it is both. It is possessing the Spirit of God, relying upon the power of God's Spirit and discernment of the Spirit as we commit ourselves to the Word of God to know and to study and be committed to glean and grow from its truth. Because it is a Spirit that guides us into all truth, but truth does not come apart from God's Word. So the Spirit is guiding us where? In the truth of the Scriptures. And so you cannot have one without the other, and if you embrace one side more so than the other, then you are in danger. Because you're in danger to pride and arrogance from intellectualism, or and missing spiritual truth altogether, or you're in danger of emotionalism and sensationalism neglecting truth altogether. Because you're saying, oh, I just feel this. It doesn't matter. What matters is what the Scriptures say. But it's understanding what Scripture says by the discerning of the Spirit of God within us, providing this discernment. And that's why, again, study is imperative, and, and, and we must understand Scripture in its context. And again, the command was given to Timothy by Paul to study, and the word study there means diligence. Be diligent, study to show thyself, be diligent to show thyself approved unto God, not unto men, unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. So now you're grounded and rooted, and you're not ashamed when the questions come, and you're not ashamed of the position you take because it does not disappoint you understand truth. Rightly dividing the word of truth. So having a contextual understanding of what the Scriptures are talking about. And so this is imperative that we understand what's being stated. Verse 15, let's continue on. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Now let me just pause here for a moment. And this very verse itself, along with previous verses in this chapter, require that we have discernment of the Spirit concerning the teaching of all of Scripture. Because if you pull this one verse out, or if you pull out verse 2 alone of this chapter, and you read this, here's what it looks like. If somebody says, Jesus is the Son of God, then that means the Holy Spirit dwells in that person. They're a believer. Is that not what it looks like it says? Let's read it again. Whosoever, oh, oh, whosoever, anybody, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. Wow. So... I mean, when you look at this verse, it would simply appear to mean that if someone says, Jesus is the Son of God, then you can't even question whether or not they possess the Spirit of God dwelling in them. You cannot question whether or not they are of faith. You cannot question no matter what their lives look like, no matter what else they say or do. No, this person declared Jesus is the Son of God. And according to this one verse, right, whoever says that, that means God's dwelling in them, and they're dwelling in Him. But of course, John is not saying what it looks like he's saying on surface, on the surface. Because we know that not to be true. In fact, is it not true that even the very devil acknowledge that Jesus is Lord? Do they not? And God's Spirit doesn't dwell within them. And furthermore, as we know, Scripture teaches us that many will say unto 
to him in that day. He says, Lord, Lord, have we not done many wonderful works in that name? And yet he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Workers of iniquity, remember that? Lord, Lord. Oh, wait, they're acknowledging his lordship. They're, they're, they're saying, Lord, we, we did all this stuff in your name. We did all this stuff in, uh, you know, under your power and authority. They claim. They didn't literally do it. Scripture doesn't say they did it. It says, many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord. Not that they did it. They claim to have done it. And so, obviously, when John makes this statement, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelt in him and he in God. It kind of goes back to, well, if you think about John's gospel, in which the scripture speaks about, let's just go there for just a minute. If you look back to John's gospel, and by the way, John wrote in Romans chapter, Romans chapter 10. So now you can, let's start this back up. Romans chapter 10. So if you look at Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, actually verse 8. But what saith it, talking about, of course, the scripture, the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So here you find another passage which Paul wrote in Romans concerning confession, which he's quoting Old Testament. He's talking about confession is made with the mouth, belief in the heart. And here John says, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God. So this somewhat goes hand in hand even with what Paul has stated. And our text this evening includes a continuation of the truth John declared within the previous verses of this chapter. Go back to verse 2, for instance. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Now John reiterates this truth in verse 15. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. So these verses demonstrate the need for discernment of the Spirit and the truth of God's Word, obviously, as I've already posed to you this evening. As we discover in our study of verse 2, at first glance it would appear as though John is declaring that anyone who says, any spirit that says or professes that Jesus is Lord is of God and has the Spirit of God dwelling within him. However, we know that this is not at all what the Scriptures teach consistently, and for the Scriptures teach us that, that those who walk in the Spirit, which is to say those who live in the truth of God's Word, are genuine followers of Jesus Christ. In Romans 8.1, for instance, Romans 8.4, 2 Corinthians 5.17 and 18, Galatians 5.16, Galatians 5.25. These have to do with walking in the Spirit, being a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away, but all things are become new. The point being that it, it isn't just simply someone making some statement, but the confession that's being spoken of here, these verses explain the reality that, that, that those who possess the Spirit walk in the Spirit. So from the collective teaching of Scripture, we understand that to actually confess as the word is used in this context consists of more than making a verbal statement alone. To confess as it's used in the context is to express openly one's allegiance. Now let's understand what's being stated here. This is saying that one is acknowledging that Jesus is Lord, and they do so verbally, openly, but the confession is not merely a statement made from their lips. It is a confession that results in a life lived under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So this isn't about just mere words that man speak, and that would go against everything Scripture teaches about what it is to be in fellowship with God and to be born again. As a matter of fact, John has already established so clearly in this epistle, already thus far, 
that God and light and darkness have, have nothing in common and that God is light. There is no darkness in him, remember? And that we are of the light. We are not of the darkness. And if someone claims to be of the light and yet walks in darkness, they are a liar. They know not God. They know not the love of God. They know not the life of God. They know not the light of God. They know not the truth of God. The whole point being that anything can be said, but then what does the life look like that makes the claim? And so John is making that distinction throughout the entirety of this epistle. So to confess here, does it mean to verbally express allegiance openly? Yes. But in the result, the confession John speaks of is the result of one's life who is now being lived in submission to the reality of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, not merely making a verbal statement of acknowledgement of His Lordship. Let me just prove to you like this. You know people and so do I. And this is just, I mean, the scriptures speak for themselves, but we see this truth demonstrated before us, or have before. I know people who've come and, and professed faith in Christ, professed Jesus as Lord, that He is risen, he's, He is God, and, and I now put absolute trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, a few weeks later, a year later, whatever, they are gone. And I mean, I say gone, I don't mean they're just not attending church services. I mean, they are off some deep end somewhere, and they're back right where they were all along, or even worse in some cases than they were before. The whole point being, that is not evidence of new life, and that is not evidence of God's Spirit. And that kind of confession is not the biblical confession. Notice even in Paul's letter in Romans, he states that confession, uh, for with uh, the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with confession, confession with the mouth is, is unto salvation. There is a heart of belief unto righteousness that then results in the confession of the mouth unto salvation. But if the heart has never been made righteous, then what the mouth says makes no difference. As a matter of fact, Jesus, quoting Isaiah, said, this people, what did Isaiah the prophet prophesy of you saying, this people draweth nigh to me with their lips, they honoreth me with lips, and draw nigh with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. He's saying no matter what they say, they do not have hearts of belief. And so these two are joined together. It's not one or the other. It's, it's both that are intertwined together. So when John speaks of whosoever confesseth that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelt in him and he in God, he's not saying if you make some verbal statement how God dwells in you. He is saying that confession is an open, public, if you will, not hidden, not some secret, private thing, allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and that only genuinely comes from a heart that has been transformed to recognize He is Lord and that He is righteous because He is our righteousness. And so again, this isn't about simply what someone says, but I will say this as well. If there's belief in the heart, then there's confession with the mouth as well. Someone who's genuinely been born again is not going to be ashamed to declare that Jesus is Lord. You understand that. But anyone can make that statement who's never even believed in the heart. Narrow the transformation of heart and mind concerning who Jesus is. So we find that the collective teaching of Scripture is much more than a verbal statement, but this is to express openly one's allegiance. And so this is far more than just an empty profession. Notice he does not say profess that Jesus is Lord. He says confess. And the idea here, of course, is not, again, just merely a word, a statement, but it is a statement of allegiance that it produces. That, that is a result of a heart of belief that therefore transforms the life, as we've seen clearly in Scripture of anyone who's ever come to genuine faith in Christ as evidence throughout the Word of God. 
So this is more than empty profession. It involves one's absolute commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, meaning a life lived in submission to the Lordship of Christ. So the truth is that the evidence of genuine fellowship with God as demonstrated by the multitude of these tests. Listen closely to this, please. This is important for you to recognize. The truth is that the evidence of genuine fellowship with God as demonstrated by the multitude of these tests provided by John within this epistle that we have studied thus far, that this evidence of genuine fellowship with God is not proven by any single fact. But the evidence of genuine fellowship with God is proven by a plethora of correlating truths. Let me explain what I just said to you, and then I'm going to read a statement. In other words, someone makes a statement like this. When I was such and such an age, I went down to an altar and asked Jesus to save me. Guess what? That is not evidence of genuine fellowship with God. Someone says, oh, when I was 14, I got baptized. That is not evidence of genuine fellowship with God. Someone says, when I was 18, I joined the church. I became faithful. When I was 20, I began to preach. When I was 25, I started pastoring. None of those things alone are genuine evidence of fellowship with God. Are you following? So someone's saying, oh, Jesus is Lord. That in itself is not genuine evidence of genuine fellowship with God. People being involved in ministry in and of itself is not evidence of genuine fellowship with God. There are many tests here that John provides. Why? Because it's not one single fact alone that is the genuine evidence of fellowship with God. It is all of these together that is the evidence of genuine fellowship with God. Spence Jones explained it like this. In verses 1 through 7, the apostle says that confession of the incarnation proves possession of the Spirit. And in verse 12, that love of the brethren proves the indwelling of God. He now, verse 13, goes on to say that possession of the Spirit proves the indwelling of God. And verse 15, that confession of the incarnation proves the same. So that these four facts, confession of the incarnation, possession of the Spirit, love of our fellow man, and indwelling of God mutually involve one another. Do you understand what he's saying? He is saying again, it's not you look at one of these and go, oh, well, that's true in my life. No, the question is, are all of these realities true in your life? Are you genuinely a follower of Christ and fellowship with Him? Do you really love truth? Do you really walk in light? Do you really love God? Do you really love the brethren? Are you following this? Do you really believe, not just giving a confession of words, do you believe by a heart that is now committed to Christ in submission to His Lordship? Because it's not just you say He's Lord, you recognize He's Lord and you submit to that Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's not one of these realities. It's all of them. In other words, it's not simply one's professed experience that proves they are born again. But rather the evidence of one's new birth is proven by the new life produced by the presence of God's Spirit and results, therefore, in a love for God, a love for His truth, a love for His people, and a desire to live in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and His Word. Interesting, isn't it? It's not just one thing here. See, all these tests, yeah, they're individual tests, but they're all tests of the same fellowship with God, and you can't say, oh, well, this is true of me, but this isn't. You can't say, well, I, I, I declare this is Lord, but yet I walk in darkness. Then you're not in fellowship with God. That's the point. Verse 16. 
And we have known and believed the love of God that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in God, love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Now, it's important to acknowledge the connection between verse 16 and verses 7 and 8, just as it is important that we recognize the connection between verse 2 and verse 15, as we've already discussed. When you look at verse 2 and verse 15, again, he talks about when acknowledging that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus came in the flesh, remember, he is the Messiah, and that he is the Son of God. And so that connection there that John makes, he says, when someone understands this, he submits to this truth, and this, this is the evidence. But then, in verse 16, this is connected to verses 7 and 8, just as verse 2 is connected to what John states in verse 15. So let's look at verses 7 and 8 together. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Conjunction for, so important here. It's not just some isolated statement that John is using in an attempt to provide an all-inclusive description or definition of who God is. He is saying God is love, for God is love, in relation to the important understanding that one, again, who is in God's love knows God, and one who knows God is in his love, and it's impossible for one to genuinely know God in a saving faith and fellowship and that love not be reality within and through their life. Because God is love. Not God is love alone. Not God is only love. But God is love. And if God is love, then how can you know this God and He dwell in you and that love not be present? That's the argument. And that's the context in which John makes this statement. So now look at verse 16 in light of that same truth. And we have known and believed the love of God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Just as the declaration, God is love, in verse 8, begins with the conjunction for, which connects it to the previous statement. Also in verse 16, the declaration, God is love, is uh, followed by a semicolon and the conjunction and, which obviously connects the statement to the one which follows. Now, this is important. I know this is grammar, and I know some of you may be bored by grammar. Listen, this is so important. For God is love. That's connecting us to the context of what's being stated. It's providing the context for us. Again, not an all-inclusive description of who God is, but saying, how can you claim you love or know God and His love not flow through you? Because God is love. And if God is love and He is in you, then love's going to be present in you. That's John's argument. But then when you come to verse 16, he makes the same or similar argument again. Notice, we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love and, so God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Again, the point is, God is love, so if you dwell in love, you're dwelling in God. God is love, so if God is in you, then you are in love and love is in you. God's love is in you. So again, the statement is being made in relation to the impossibility of one knowing this God who is love to those who know him. Because remember, to the world, this isn't to the world. John is not talking to the unbeliever here saying, God is love, as people try to say he is. John is talking to the beloved, those who know God. And if you know God, here's what you know, he is love. But if you don't know God, you don't know he is love. All you know is his wrath. You're under his condemnation. Now, you know of his grace in a general sense. You know of his mercy in a general sense. And his love has been demonstrated and manifested in his son, as John's already stated. But you don't know the love of God if you don't know God. But if you know him as your father, you don't fear him as your, fa as your father, but you reverence him as the one who has loved you, redeemed you, and you have respect and reverence for him, but it's not 
a fear as in, and John goes on to speak of this in the following verses, perfect love casteth out fear. What is he saying? He's saying we don't fear God as our judge. We reverence him and love him as our father. And what a vast difference there is. In other words, listen, as a believer in Jesus Christ, hear what I'm about to say to you. You have no need to be scared of God at all. But if you know not the Lord Jesus Christ, you have every reason to be fearful and scared of him and his judgment. I don't fear God as my father. I reverence him as my father. But as my father, you know what he has done? He's demonstrated and shown and bestowed upon me and to me his love. And therefore, as the Hebrew writer says, even in chastening, God is demonstrating his love because he loves me. And as I've said to you so many times, this is so important to understand. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, Jesus literally took your place, meaning this. Not just Jesus died for me. Yes, he did. But it's not just he physically died for me. Every portion of God's wrath that would have been mine has been exhausted upon his son on my behalf. So there is no wrath reserved for me. Wow, what a joy. There is no wrath of God reserved for me. None. So I don't have to be scared of him. I reverence him. He is my father, but he has shown me great love. So you know what I say as a believer? God is love. But to the unbeliever, I can't say that to them as though God is loving them. I can say God is love and that he has demonstrated that love in the son. He has given me that love in his son, and I know his love. But apart from Christ, you do not know God's love. So to make this blanketed statement, God is love, as though this is something we declare to all men, they know nothing of what we're talking about. Only a believer understands what John is talking about. God is love, and the argument is, if God is love, which he is, again, not all-inclusive definition of God, but if God is love and he is, then how can one possess God within them, and love not be present within them. That's the argument, because by the way, hey, this God that you speak of knowing, He is love to those who know Him. This connection is important to understand, and that it is in this connection which provides the contextual emphasis of the statements which John is making. In other words, both declarations of God is love are made to emphasize the truth that one cannot possess the love of God without knowing God, and one cannot know God without His love emanating from them. That's the point. As John stated in verse 16, for one to dwell in love is to dwell in God, and for God to dwell in Him. So where God dwells, His love is not only present, but also will be irrefutably manifested. To know Christ is to know God's love, and to know God's love is for God to dwell in us. And one cannot separate knowing God from His love as expressed in Jesus Christ. Neither can one know God's love apart from a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. So to know God is to know Christ, to know Christ is to know God. Remember what Philip, remember Jesus said to Philip, Philip, how long have you been with me? Do you not understand? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. To know Christ is to know the Father. To know the Father is to know Christ. And to know the Father is to know, or to know Christ is to know the love of God. And to know the love of God is to know the Father. And if all of this is true, then how can you know Him and that love not be present? And how can you know Him and that love not emanate from you? That is the argument John's making. And it's not simply, oh, I love people, therefore that's evidence God's fear dwells in me. No. 
Remember, it's not one single truth alone. And John will deal with this further in chapter 5 specifically because he goes on to say, by this we know, we understand by these truths that we are the children of God. And it's a multitude of truths that John lists again and rehearses, not simply one. This idea, I asked Jesus in my heart one day and therefore I know I'm going to heaven, that's not what Scripture says at all. How do we understand that God dwells in us? Oh, I just, I feel him. No. It's not true. That's not what Scripture says. I, 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 I just, I woke up one day and I started loving people. So No, that's not what Scripture says. Are you following me? I declared, I stood before a whole church and I said, Jesus is the Son of God. So what? That means nothing. Are you following? That alone is not salvation nor evidence of salvation. And this mentality that there's one thing that identifies me as a believer in Jesus Christ. No, the Scripture is saying, look, it is all of these evidences present in one's life that stand as a testimony that they truly are in genuine fellowship with God. Anyone can say anything, anyone can do, any, do a certain thing, you know, a specific thing. Anyone can make a claim, anyone can make a profession, anyone can confess this or that or the other. Anyone can attend services, anyone can commit, give money, anyone can commit their time. Anyone can offer service, services in ministry, anyone can commit their abilities and their gifts, if you will, for the sake of the church. But it's not one of these things that prove you're in fellowship with God. It's all the truth, that we walk in light, we love God, we love the brethren, we love the truth, the truth conform, or, or continues to transform us, we desire for it to transform us. And we confess, not only with our mouths, but we can, our hearts have believed unto righteousness, and now because of that, confession is made with the mouth of this salvation, and therefore now our lives are a living witness and testimony of the grace and the glory of God as demonstrating the person and the love of God in Jesus Christ. This is the evidence of someone who's been born again. Not the date you wrote in your Bible about the day you said a prayer. It's true. Is there a moment when you brought the faith in Christ? Absolutely. And I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm in no way marginalizing that or saying that's not important. Of course it is. That we know we've been born again. But here's the thing. Your testimony or your profession or your confession of being born again, if it's not, if it has not resulted in a life that's been transformed as evidenced in Scripture, then you know nothing of the grace of God and the love of God at all. Nothing. And it's important that you recognize that all these tests are given for a reason. And it's not we're going through just checking off marks. Oh, I have some love in my life. I try to do good, I try to do right, I try to walk faithfully, I try to... No, that's not what's being said here. Are these reality in your life or are they not? And if these truths are not a reality in your life, then you do not know God. You are not in fellowship with Him. I don't know how much clearer this could possibly be. It is extremely clear and articulated so well in John's epistle concerning those who genuinely possess fellowship with the Lord. 